Sadhusana Singh, Chapter 7, The Road to Tibet At Delhi, during these eventful years, new problems were springing up every day within the Christian church of the Punjab, which clamoured for solution. Further delay was impossible. If the young community of Christians was to remain vigorous and strong. One of the greatest of these difficulties confronted us in St. Stephen's College itself. The Christian youths who came to us from every part of the Punjab for university education were certain to be leaders of the church in the future. For whether they entered the ministry or remained as laymen, they were bound to occupy prominent positions. The community was still in its infancy and very few members of it had reached the university's standard. But a tradition had grown up which had already become fraught with very serious consequences. Sons of Indian Christians, whatever their qualifications, could easily obtain monetary assistance if only they could pass the matriculation. This was due in the main to kindly help which came from abroad. The ease, however, with which such help was obtained defeated its own object. It created a sense of dependence on outside support, which became demoralizing. It led on to the further expectation that everything would be done by us in college to advance the worldly prospects of our students. The nerve center of self-sacrifice was severed wherever thoughts like these prevailed. I just want to pray. Father, thank you that inside your heart is self-sacrifice. Thank you that you sacrificed your life, Jesus. You sacrificed your son, Father. Holy Spirit, you're also present. You're also sacrificed. So, Father, help us to enter into your heart. Touch each one of us right now, I pray, Lord, to reveal to us what you're saying. Thank you for your love, Lord. That sacrifice is inside your heart, Lord. Okay, let's read on. Christ's message of the cross was difficult to explain in such an atmosphere. For the cross had become to many of our students just what it appeared to the Greeks. Mere foolishness. Yet we, who were their teachers, had been responsibly commissioned to show that Christ crucified was in truth the power of God and the wisdom of of God. 1 Corinthians 1.23 This difficulty became acute because our own conventional lives as members of the college staff did not impress our students by their self-denial. We did our work surrounded by too much outward comfort. Thus we were working in a vicious circle from which it seemed impossible to escape, for it did not appear possible either to Principal Rudra or to those of us who were on his staff immediately to change our style of living 
though we often talked the matter over. Just at this point, the sadhu came quite simply and almost unconsciously to our rescue. While he was in Delhi with Mr. Rudra, he used to spend the greater part of his spare time with the Christian students in the hostel. They sat up with him into the long hours of the night and very soon became intensely eager to go up to Kotgar and live with him there so that they might catch something of his own brave spirit. He did what no older man could have done, for he was young like themselves. The change which came in this manner was marvelous to witness. One of the students, a cricketer and athlete, gave up assured prospects in government service for directly Christian work. Another made up his mind to enter the ministry of the church for a life of sacrifice and devotion. When one of the college sweepers who was an untouchable was ill, one of those who had come most of all under the influence of the sadhu went into the sweeper's quarters and stayed with him and nursed him through his illness. Such a thing had never happened in the history of the college before. What, it may be asked, was the attraction that made such a wonderful change. Nothing that was merely second-rate could possibly have affected it. Effected it. No mode of living, half in comfort, half in self-denial, could have worked such a miracle. But Sundar Singh's life could stand the test. It was reckless in its self-spending. He had counted the cost the cross was not preached only, but lived, lived, and that made all the difference. In Sundar Singh's own handwriting, I have a manuscript and a small calendar giving an account of one of his many journeys to the Tibetan border on its western side. In the calendar, he had jotted down against each day throughout July and August the place where he passed the night. The facts recorded in this manuscript are not so marvellous as those that occurred on other occasions, and yet the hardships he encountered made it a continual wonder that he ever came through alive. I've got a note in my margin here to Hebrews 11, 36-39, so I'm just going to read that. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword, they, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Verse 40. Because God had provided something better from, uh, for us, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. So we are interwoven with them. 
Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So we are bearing fruit because of their blood and their sacrifice. With everything, of course, pointing back to the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. The eternal blood, the eternal sacrifice. It was the story of journeys like these, simply told by the Sadhu himself, which kindled the hearts of the students at Delhi as they sat listening to him halfway through the night. This special journey took place in 1919 and was therefore later than those college days which I've been recalling. But the record is typical of all the earlier journeys also, and may well be taken as an example. At the beginning of July, he writes, I set out for Tibet by the Hindustan-Tibet road, taking a Tibetan Christian with me. His name was Taniyat. We started from Kotgar, which is nearly 130 miles from the border. He then mentions different villages at which he stopped to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the people, until at last he came to the border of Tibet. There were only shepherds to be seen for many miles around across the border, and no human habitation. Therefore both of them were obliged to sleep in the open. Farther on the cold became intense, especially at nights for they were climbing over a very difficult pass. Many people had actually died in the snow which lay on the ground throughout the year. The pass itself rose to nearly 19,000 feet, and they saw three dead bodies on the road. When they crossed the pass at that high altitude, they found their breathing becoming difficult and the beating of their hearts sounded with a heavy thud in their ears. Glaciers had to be crossed with crevasses, but by God's good grace they both came through in safety. When they had reached a village called Mud, on the other side they were received with great kindness. The headman of the village brought the chief lama to come and take food with the sadhu. He knew a little Hindustani and heard the word of God with gladness. Other people also were ready to listen to the gospel. Thus they went on from one village to another until they reached a Tibetan monastic center called Ki Ganpa, where there was a temple with 400 lamas. They remained with the head lama for two days. Although, writes the sadhu, he did not put us to any suffering, yet he carried on a great controversy with us. Sundar Singh then goes on to explain the various kinds of dangers and difficulties encountered on their forward journey. The currents of the rivers, which had to be crossed on foot, they were often very fast, and great boulders were continually washed down, which made even swimming difficult. In the icy water, the body of the swimmer became quite numbed, 
Taniyat was very nearly drowned. There was also continual trouble about food. Only tea was provided, which was drunk with salt and butter, and along with this they were given parched barley. Sometimes, writes Sadhu quaintly, the barley is prepared in such a way that even a horse or a mule will not touch it. Then he adds the following significant words. There's only one comfort in the middle of all these troubles. They are all endured for the sake of the cross. For my sake, Christ left heaven and endured the suffering of the cross. If I, for his sake, in order to save souls, have left India and have come to Tibet, that is no great matter. But if I did not go, that would be sad indeed. For it was surely my duty to go. He found the houses of the Tibetans very small and dirty. The people themselves were dirty also, and their clothes made of wool became quite black with dirt, because they were never washed. When the Sadhu went to clean his own clothes in a stream, the people looked on with wonder. The chief lama rebuked him for it, saying, There is no harm in evil people washing their clothes. But for holy men to wash, that is a very bad thing indeed. Though they had many hardships to encounter on this journey, they did not have such trials to bear as had been met with on other occasions. The lamas, instead of persecuting them, received them in a friendly manner. They gave them, as usual, salted tea with butter and parched barley for their food and helped the sadhu in other ways. He relates with a touch of humor how one day a kindly lama, seeing that he had some trouble because his hair was too long, took a big instrument with which wool was cut off the sheep's backs and used it on his head. We went on from Kiwa, he relates, and had good opportunities of preaching in other villages. But the people were very few in number. Thieves and robbers also abound keeping the countryside in a state of panic. One good man said to me, You ought not to go about without a, a sword or a gun, for this is a dreadful place to live in, and many people have been murdered. I have only my Bible and my blanket, I replied. The word of God is my sword. The Lord of life is with me, and he will deliver me. Through the mercies of God, I came out of it all quite safely. In that panic-stricken region, I preached the word of God. Indeed, those very robbers who had committed murders came in and stayed with us and did not do, to, did not do us the least bit of harm. Yet there were actually people present there who had lost a leg or a hand through the cruelty of these bandits who had mutilated them in this manner. Others had even been murdered, but the Lord brought us through in safety. The sadhu notices that in spite of their addiction to violence and their dirty way of living, the Tibetans are at heart a very kindly and religious folk. The custom of each family was to make the eldest son carry on the work of the house, while the rest of the sons became lamas. He mentions also the famous Tibetan hermits, 
some of whom he actually visited. They shut themselves up, he says, in a dark cell. Some remain in this condition for a number of years. Some stay in darkness for their whole lives. They never see the sun and never come out. They sit inside and turn a prayer wheel. Thus they live just as if they were in the grave. On one side of their dark cells, they make a small hole through which people put food for them to eat. I tried hard to talk with them, but did not get permission. I could only throw through the hole some passages of scripture for them to read. From these hermits I learnt a great lesson, for these people go through all the suffering to gain that which is nothing at all. They do it to reach nirvana, which holds out no prospect of a future life, and heavenly joy, but only leads to the extermination of life and spirit and all desires. This is the idea of salvation. How much more ought we to serve Christ and lay hold on eternal life and in His service joyfully take up the cross for His sake who has given and will give us His heavenly blessing. The Sadhu ends this short narrative of his tour by explaining that because it was already late in the year when he started he was obliged to return towards the end of August. He had found the tiny band of Christians on the Tibetan border whom he visited doing well. This was a matter of deep thankfulness to him, as they were very isolated and had no instructor. He hoped to be able to take one of them back to India and give him a good training so that he might return to teach his own people. After returning from adventures such as these and meeting once more the students from our college, Sundar Singh would so inspire them with his own courageous spirit that for many weeks afterwards they would speak to one another about him and plan expeditions to the hills so as to be with him on one of his journeys into the interior. On some occasions, one or two of them would start with him, but the difficulties of the way would become too great and they would be obliged to return. Nevertheless, at Kotgar itself, whenever he was known to be there, they would eagerly seek to meet him. Not merely in our own college at Delhi, but all over the Punjab, the same new spirit of sacrifice was enkindled. During the time when he lived a retired life of study in the divinity school at Lahore, young men, Christian and non-Christian, used to come to him for spiritual help and counsel. And though at that time he was extremely reticent and not altogether happy concerning the course he had chosen, the silent influence of his, of his example made its own deep impression. Gradually the news concerning him spread in wider circles until he was eagerly sought for to help at conventions for the deepening of spiritual life all over the north of India. With regard to that portion of his life, I have no personal memories to offer, for my own duties took me to 
Nikitan in Bengal, the home of Rabindranath Tagore, while the sadhu remained chiefly in the Punjab. Very occasionally, when I went to the north, I would meet him, but our frequent intercourse, which had been such a joy and blessing to me, came to an end after I had left Delhi. In those later years, right up to the time of his death, Principal Rudra remained, sorry, maintained his friendship with the sadhu more closely than ever, and he would often write to me about him. Now and then he was perplexed by the strange narratives which the sadhu had brought back concerning his wanderings in Tibet, and he would often argue with him that much of what he had experienced had been due to his highly wrought imagination. He doubted some of the stories, but he never doubted for a moment the sincerity and the simplicity of the sadhu himself. That was beyond question. After I had left Delhi, Lala Kubram, a science professor of St. Stephen's College, often accompanied Principal Rudra to Kotka. During their visits, they had ample opportunities of meeting the sadhu and talking over these mysterious incidents with him thus getting to know more clearly his own point of view concerning the supernatural world. While they differed from him in certain important aspects, they both rejoiced to find that after his visits to the West in 1920 and 1922, when he had become world famous, his love for Christ had grown still deeper than before, and his humility had become more profound than ever. He had also ceased to speak in public, about what he had seen in ecstatic visions and confined himself to the simplest gospel message. Cecile Rudra passed away in August 1924. He suffered from a long and painful illness, very patiently born, wherein his courageous bearing of pain seemed to make him gentler than ever. He was at Solan when the end came, in the midst of those same similar hills which he had learnt to love. While his outward strength was failing him, he prayed every day with earnest longing for a revival in the Indian Christian Church, which would bring with it a renewed devotion to the service of Christ among the suffering. All through these last days I was able to be with him, and it was touching to witness how this Longing increased while his bodily strength decayed. Rudra's grave is in the Himalayan hills, and it would now seem almost certain that the sadhu also met his death in the recesses of the Himalayas. To both of them, the one passion of their lives which carried them through every humiliation was the love of Christ. If they have been able to implant this in the hearts of the young Indian Christians who looked up to them for guidance and example, they will not have lived in vain. Here ends chapter 7, entitled The Road to Tibet. The next chapter is chapter 8, The Way of the Cross.